Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is the Real Estate Podcast, the intersection between the latest trends in real estate and its impact on our everyday lives. We're your hosts, Alex Norman. And Jamie Blonde, and you've come to the right location. The Real Estate starts now. In today's episode, On Location, we explore the intersection between film production and real estate, how production studios view space, and how audiences will adapt. We are excited to have as our guest today, Aaron Kaufman, a writer, producer, and director who currently works with public school productions. He has directed films like Urge and partnered with Robert Rodriguez at Quick Draw to produce fan favorites such as Sin City 2, Machete, and others. He has just finished directing his first documentary, Crusaders for Vice Media. Aaron, welcome to the show. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks, guys. Aaron, tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into this business. Uh, film, I got into almost 20 years ago now. Um, it was always something I was interested in doing. I had had a different start to my career in the uh, uh, startup space back in the back in the first wave of the internet um, and uh, sold a small company and worked, um, you know, worked in, in tech for a little while and definitely wanted to get out of it um, <laughs> as soon as I could um, and ended up back in, 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 uh, in film after that and uh, started in New York working um, for Chris Blackwell's company, Palm Pictures, um, where I really kind of got my first uh, taste of, of the indie film space. Uh, started out as a smaller you know, indie producer um, and then ultimately partnered with, uh, or had to work to work for Robert Rodriguez uh, and moved to Austin where we started Quick Drop Productions and he had Troublemaker Studios. Nice. So what does it take to make a film these days? Well, uh, I mean, <laughs> there's always three things, right? It's always talent, con- you know, the, the actual um, project and money. Um, now, I, I think this last year has been really challenging um, in some ways, it's been great because the demand for for everything is through the roof, and people are consuming uh, film and television at a rate that we've never seen before. Um, on the flip side, actually physically creating uh, film and television is is not as fun as as it was. I mean, COVID's made it a lot more complicated. Um, and then the who the buyers are, the people that are paying for um, for things, has in the last five to 10 years has changed dramatically. You know, it used to be that you had, you know, small amount of studio, few studios, and you had a, a few independent uh, financiers. And now it's the streamers that are really your dominant forces, um, which has put strain on your traditional studios and on your independent financing as well. So I would say <clears throat> you're catching the, this at a moment, which is in complete flux. Um, and there's a lot of great things happening but I think there's also some, some challenges as well. So uh, as a producer, how do you approach that situation of strong demand, hard to actually execute producing a film in this environment? I mean, what kind of challenges you have to overcome these days that you really didn't have in the past? Yeah, I think it's, you know, the percept, how you perceive things really dictates the, the, the way you approach material, right? Because you can sit around and really bemoan what's gone, right? I mean, there was a time where, you know, you could work with independent financiers, you could use your um, foreign sales, you know, uh, you could far, you know sell to to smaller markets 
and then you know borrow against that and put a movie together and you had that ability and it, it kind of gave you as a producer the ability in your hands if you're willing to work to 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 do that that's changed and you could sit around and bemoan that and believe me I have and I've, I've heard that. Um, but the flip side is to really just learn and adapt and see what are people really watching right now and what opportunities does all of this change produce? Uh, so I've looked at things, you know, I, I've worked for the most part in narrative films, um, mostly in sort of the, um, I would say the, the either action or genre space. Um, but now I'm looking at everything, you know, whether it's television, whether it's documentary, which I've now, worked in for the, I have a, a few projects in, in that space. Um, and so that's made things more exciting, but it took being able to be malleable to say, you know, what, I don't have to just think of myself as I'm a film producer. I'm somebody who knows how to bring talent together and that know how to execute a project. So therefore I look at the world much differently now, you know, something could be unscripted, something could be a television project, something could even be, you know, um, suitable just for, you know, for online or for a new, a new platform. And I'm becoming, you know, somewhat um, agnostic as to what, what platform that, uh, that is going to be on. So who ultimately makes the call on what film gets made, right? We had a guest on one of our shows that talked about fan favorites and what came up was Zack Snyder, right? The, the studio at one point, made the call and what gets made, but then all of a sudden fans step up and say, Hey, look, you know, we actually want this film made. And so it gets made. So where's that going and who, who makes the call ultimately? Well, I think it, uh, that's anomalous, right? Because uh, you, you've seen it in the past where, you know, they'll like Josh Whedon had a show a long time ago that got canceled after Firefly. the first season. Firefly, Firefly. Yeah. So like Firefly got canceled and it was like this huge, you know, fans were, you know, writing letters and this campaign. And it was like, yeah, no one cares. Right. I mean, for the, so, and also too, by the way, you hear that fans, <laughs> well, no, but the, the, the problem. And look, I, I worked with Robert Rodriguez for six years. We went to Comic-Con. I was, I was knee deep in that like hyper fan world. And maybe it's grown since then, but what we would find is that really kind of like hyper nerd Comic-Con cosplay group of people they are very fervent and very much you know uh, enthusiastic but they're small your average person doesn't go you know pre-covid your average person doesn't go to the movies every week or every month right you have uh you know the, when you look at the actual numbers of what people actually do when it comes to to film it's much much different than a person who's an active you know sort of uh, film buff so I, I do think that the direct relationship that um, someone like Netflix will have with, uh, with its audience um, will start to dictate different decisions because Netflix knows that you've picked the project, watched it for two minutes and abandoned it, right? They'll know, oh, hey, people are watching, you know, uh, uh, you know the Queen's Gambit in droves, right? And so they, they're going to make decisions based on what people are actually doing and so I think that's interesting, but um, yeah, I, I don't know that Zack Snyder's um, him getting his project made is um, I think it's somewhat anomalous. Well, when you, you tell this story, it reminds me of Star Trek. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, we all loved Star Trek and then it got canceled and it was the fans that kept clamoring for more. 
that I think Paramount was willing to take a shot. And the first one was horrible, but the fans were such so so drawn to the to to the product that uh, movie after movie came out, and then three or four different TV shows came out. And it, I, I guess they, they were really fervent fans. Um, you bring up Netflix, which is a good point. This the new studio model of Netflix and and other streaming services has that moved the power shift away from the director or the writer or the agent uh, to the streaming service company because they have all the money now. I think I think actually, if you look at what's happened, the power obviously the streamers have a lot of power, but they're being competitive with one another right and the fact that box office is not the only metric that's being used to to um to understand success is really pushing the power to the creator right so you're seeing you know nine digit um deals getting done with um uh with writers you know uh with ryan murphy with you know tyler perry with others people that can consistently create um you know successful shows that people are or films that people want to watch um you're seeing those people really have the 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 power shonda rhymes you know there's there's a lot of of those those uh people that i'd say the real power kind of sits in there um in their laps at at the moment uh because a platform doesn't have a platform if they don't have that that content that people are actually going to actively watch um and so that's where i think the power dynamic is outside of that though um i mean obviously uh netflix is the big 800 pound gorilla but hbo max disney they their their entrees into the streaming worlds have been more successful than people thought they were going to be and um so i think i think it's the model is changing and now the model is not just what are people going to go see on a friday night it's how do I keep the most amount of people engaged on this platform for, for, for longer, which is in many ways a completely different business. Well, you mentioned HBO Max. I mean, they came on the scene uh, with a vengeance. I mean, it seems like, right? I mean, how did they get rights to, you know, to show those movies like uh, Wonder Woman, like the snack, Zack Snyder, like Godzilla versus Kong? I mean, how did they get the rights? Well, they, I mean, they own they own Warner Brothers, right? So they have the rights to those things, but they were all, um, they were, those were all planned for theatrical. I actually theorized that the, the, you remember in um, Indiana Jones and the first Raiders of Lost Ark, Mm -hmm. there's a beginning scene. Yeah. So he's there and he's got the gold idol and the bag of sand (laughs) and he's trying to like figure out like, how do I move the, the idol off and the bag of sand on? Well, I think that for the most part, studios have been have had the idol and the bag of sand in their hands for a while, which is how do we move away from traditional theatrical distribution and we move toward a um, you know sort of more direct model, the way that the music business has, right? Where we're going to go directly to our consumers and not have to really deal with this. But the problem is, because they're publicly traded companies, that you have a scenario where they just couldn't say, oh, hey, we're going to forego a year's worth of theatrical box office to try this idea that we have, right? right. It almost could just never happen come the pandemic. And all of a sudden, now that decision's made for them. So they got to really, I really think that most of them got to try what they ultimately wanted to try anyway, to see if this was a, a provable model. And when Warner Brothers decided to put to forego theatrical and just put 
all those big movies onto their their platform. Um, that's where you know I think we were able to test that theory, and it looks like it's it's sticking. Wow. You look at some of those movies like Wonder Wonder Woman two. Those movies were generating anywhere from seven hundred million to a billion plus in box office when the theaters were open. When they go to something like HBO Max, can can HBO or Warner Brothers squeeze that kind of money out of the product? Yeah, well, look look at that. Okay, so you let's say a movie makes five hundred million dollars worldwide, right? First and foremost, they splitting that revenue with the, the with the the theaters. So it's not exactly 50-50, but call it 50-50 just to make the math right. So that, that 500 is now 250, right? In addition, to get that 250, they may have had to spend upwards of $100 million in marketing, right? So that 250 is now 150, right? And then they had ancillary platforms to, to do that. Now you have a platform where you don't have to split with a, uh, with a theater group and you have... 30 million, 40 million, 50 million people paying you $10 a month, um, month in, month out, month in, month out for the for the year. So on whole, if you get over a certain threshold like Netflix has, you're into a way more lucrative um, financial situation than they had with the with the theaters. Wow. That's really interesting. And, and so I want to uh, shift a little bit to talk about space, right? And location. You know, when I think about um, movie making, I think and location. I think about the big sets, like James Bond, uh, uh, Moonraker. You know, they were all over the world. I think of. <laughs> I think of. Um, you know, Moonraker. They didn't shoot in space, right? <laughs> what? <FYI>. What? <laughs> I don't mean to ruin uh, it. Next, you're gonna. Next, you're gonna tell me that. It, no. No, next, great. Next, you're gonna Not tell shot. me they didn't shoot gravity in space either. Clooney yeah. and, and they didn't go up to space and but, shoot that. But you know, look. I mean, it's and that green screen movies like Lord of the Rings. You know, just big sets and big, uh, big location shoots. Uh, and then there, there are locations that are just in someone's bedroom, like uh, Room with a View, uh, and and all that. So, how important is location? Uh, is space when thinking about making movies? Yeah, um, there's a couple of there's a couple of things to unpack here. Because I actually, um, having worked with Robert, one of the things that was very unique about um, about Robert Rodriguez was he had his own studio, like he had his own space. He had a decommissioned um, uh, airport in Texas that he leased um, from the state or the city or both. I don't I don't remember, but but he has like a ninety nine year lease on that that space. So when I went down there the first time, I mean it was it was exciting to work with him. But what was really exciting was you know it was like a playground. I mean, if you're a film nerd going down to this sort of, um, you know, uh, studio where you have your own back lot and your own green screen, and, you know, it was just, it was amazing. Um, that really was conducive to, I, I think a lot of his creativity because he was like, I can try this out. I can try that out. And so he approached uh, filmmaking a lot differently than other filmmakers because he could, Try, like Sin City originally was R&D that he just did himself. It was like, hey, how can I do this where it would be live action, but it would look like the the um, the the, uh, the the comics? And remember, this was before 300. That was before that 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 sort of immersive green screen was even a thing. Um, that came from him having, well, it came from him being talented, but it also came from him having that infrastructure. Same thing could be said for the Spy Kids movies. So having your own space is amazing. 
there are literally three filmmakers that have their own space. I mean, it's Tyler Perry, uh, Robert, and um, uh, also Peter Jackson. Uh, and to, to, to another extent, uh, George Lucas. Um, but other than that, most filmmakers don't have that. In fact, most filmmaking, you're really, it's a really product of, you know, we're setting up. So everything's starting from scratch every time. So it's, we have to get office space. We have to get studio space. We have to shoot. And then when you fold in the sort of soft money aspects of film finance, which is at the studio level, as well as on the indie side, that also dictates where you're going to be, you know, and then that depicts where, what spaces you're going to, to use. Right. So people are shooting in Puerto Rico and Georgia um, quite a bit because of the soft money advantages to, to, to that. And there's always been some level or element of that in filmmaking going back since the beginning of time. Well, it's interesting you bring up a couple of really good points there. Miami Vice is a perfect example of how South Beach got completely reinvigorated and and tremendous growth because of the exposure uh, of Miami Vice in Miami. Um, and you know, I, we know from here in Miami that we don't have subsidies here. And Atlanta put their hands up, and now they have a ton of production there. Tyler Perry's studios there are the size of a small city. So yeah. it clearly seems like governments and cities feel they will benefit from real estate development, from tourism, uh, from from the small ancillary industries that support uh, movie making or TV making, like the caterers, like the uh, the lighting, etc. Uh, how much of that goes into your thought process when you are trying to determine where your where your next production is going to happen? How important is that? Yeah. Now? Well, there's a couple things there, right? Because there's on one on one hand, from my perspective. Um, uh, you're pretty mercenary, right? You have a movie you're trying to make, the budget's $10 million, let's say. Um, and you're trying to find the most lucrative tax credit that you can find because the more lucrative you can find, the less uh, equity you have to raise to, to put that film together, right? Um, if you're making something with a studio, generally speaking, wherever you can shoot advantageously, you'll get a little bit more money towards your production. The problem is though, is people approach this conversation a lot uh, from the perspective of just the amount of money they can get the production. And when you've been in production for a long time, you realize there's all these other elements that people don't factor in, right? So for a while there was um, taxes, tax, really good tax credit programs in Iowa, in Michigan, and a few others, but they didn't have the infrastructure, right? All the cottage industries that you just mentioned, you know, all the, the catering and the rentals and, uh, you know, on and on and on, they didn't have, or the, even the professionals to, um, you know, to hire. I, there was a shoot in Michigan, a friend of mine was on, and uh, when he was in the car with the driver, he asked the guy, you know, what, uh, I guess he, he was talking about where they were from, and the driver had been flown in from LA to be a driver <laughs> on a set in Michigan. And so that, what that shows you, though, is a program that's set up poorly can also really not help the the place that it's um that it's trying to help right um and can ultimately just kind of be bad for for everybody because you as a producer you're struggling because this place is not set up for you and then the place itself is not getting the benefits that they that they want to get out of it well there's no doubt that filming on location is a big draw in terms of the visual of the movie i don't think uh I don't think Fast and Furious would be a franchise if they didn't have all those great locations. <laughs> you know, you just wish you were there, Monaco, Rio, et cetera. 
Then 2020 shows up and COVID hits. How has that impacted not only the ability to, to produce something on location, but more importantly as well, get people into the theaters or be able to see your product aside from the streaming services? How has that changed the whole landscape? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things are, you know, you'd be surprised, like those Fast and Furious movies, they've shot a bunch of stuff in Puerto Rico for, for Rio and for other places. Um, so it's, you know, they're, 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 when you were in production for a while, you can't make a, you know, you can't make a James Bond movie all in Idaho, but there, there are stuff you can do. Um, I would say COVID to be honest, I've been working, the two things that I've been working on this year have been documentary projects. Um, this year coming up is I'm coming back to, to, uh, producing and, and then directing another narrative feature, but, um, documentary actually kind of an unscripted kind of lent itself to, to how COVID worked. It was still challenging, but you know, this project I worked on with vice, there was a team, you know, um, they were actually spread out all over from New York to Montana, to Georgia, to LA. And, um, you know, we were on zooms, um, you know, editing via zoom with an editor is, is not ideal. Um, but it was, it was doable, you know, so, it's it's possible film is very malleable as far as you know that's one of the great things about film crews is they'll figure out you know but every day is a challenge right so COVID is a challenge but for a typical film worker you know you're hey we're in this place it has no air conditioning hey we're in this place and you know the the uh, the airport's right next door hey we're in this place and well you know so you're used to kind of dealing with problems all day it's part of the job um and i think COVID just becomes another another one of those, those things that said, um, it, it is very much a people business and you're dealing with each other. And there's, you know, you have a tight crew of people that are, are working together, um, having to separate, having the, these things sort of in between people is, um, is, is challenging. And every, everyone I know who's, who's been doing production this year, it, it doesn't seem like it's been a lot of fun. And, and the shooting that I've done this year, has been, you know, it, it, you're getting less done per day than you would typically because of all the protocols and everything you have to go through. So on that note, though, because of COVID, people and businesses have shifted a lot of ways. People are working from home, businesses are moving out of the cities, uh, and that creates a lot of opportunity for uh, or maybe not opportunity for you, but but a lot of vacancies you know, in the cities of which people and businesses have left, uh, places like New York, um, to a certain extent, um, Chicago and other major metros. It, does that create an opportunity for the film to move back into those cities and to do stuff um, yeah. in the cities again, as opposed to you know, in the middle of, you know, in a... In a um, I don't in, think so. Desert I, I don't think so for, for two reasons. One... I, um, the production, the level of production is really, was ramping up so heavily because of the arms race of, you know, Hulu, Netflix, HBO Max, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I, you know, people are working to an extent that, you know, really hasn't been seen. So that's, that's one. Two, because this stuff takes a while, like Georgia building up to the point that Georgia's at right now, um, took a long time. And so think about it. It's not just Tyler Perry's opening a studio. It's people are moving from, we had, we had crew in Austin when Texas did away with their um, film subsidies. 
people who loved Austin and wanted to stay there um, moved to Louisiana, moved to Georgia. Um, so that 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 shift takes a while to do that to move those infrastructure, you know, into those places. It doesn't just move on a dime, right? Um, so I think those are the two factors. But look, New York is still New York, and and the shooting in New York is is still, um, you know, pretty pretty dramatic. There's still a New York pro, uh, tax program. Um, I think the places that have hurt are places that have killed any subsidies, um, and Austin was a good example of that. So what comes next now? How do we turn the page on COVID and get people back into the theaters to the point where they feel comfortable to be in the theater? Uh, is it the vaccines? Is it herd immunity? Um, from your vantage point in the middle of the industry, what, what data points are you guys looking for or pushing towards to get that to happen? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm farther down the trough, you know, and, and as a producer. Um, but I will say that I, you know, just anecdotally, it does feel like people have been cooped up for a year and getting out, going someplace, having a place to go to meet people, et cetera. People seem really, you know, um, amped up to, to do that. You know, if you look around, I live in Soho. If you look around Soho, you, the, now that the weather's nicer, like you really got this energy that people want to get back and want to, you know, want to be social. I, I think that'll translate. You're already seeing box office tick up, um, you know, for a movie like, like Godzilla vs. King Kong, which is on HBO Max, but also in theaters, and you're seeing it actually perform okay in, in theaters. So I do think it'll come back. I don't think theatrical dies um, the, a complete death, um, but I do think it will, it will morph. And then um, people seem to be a step ahead of where we are with the recovery, right? So you guys are in Florida there, even before everybody's, you know, um, has the, uh, um, the vaccines, they're already itching to go, to go, uh, to go out, you know? And, and so I think, I do think it'll come back. I think it'll be sort of a roaring twenties type of, uh, type of thing that people won't want to be in their houses for the next year. Well, I, I can second that feeling. I went to the baseball game, the home opener here, the Marlins yesterday. It's the first time I've really been out to any event, since COVID hit, I've been vaccinated now and I'm feeling a little more bulletproof than I was in the past. And everybody had their mask on, except when they were eating or drinking. Um, everybody was smart about it, but it just felt so good, like you say, to get out. And what you just said reminds me, I remember when the DVD, I'm old enough to remember when DVDs came out and everybody thought that was going to be the death knell for theaters. Big TVs became cheaper, the DVDs were out, and nobody would go to the theater. But I, to me, the theater is a social event. It's either your families or your buddies to see an action movie, or it's romantic with your, with your significant other to see something that touches you both. I just don't see that ever going away. People, we're, we're, a, we're, a, we're a community type of animal. We're a, a pack animal. And I think that will always come back. It's just a question of feeling the risk reward is in your favor again, you know? Yeah. And look, being a little older and having been in business for a while, you you do realize this is a 75-year-old conversation, right? Because when television first was introduced, the film studios were freaking out that that was going to be their death knell. Then color TV, right? And that's when, you know, if anything, it's pushed theatrical to change. So you saw a widescreen and, you know, Cinemascope and all of those things get invented and, and better sound and then ultimately surround sound and THX. These are all things that were innovations because they needed to be something that you couldn't necessarily get at home, right? Well, now things are progressing to 
where you have an infinite amount of options, that theatrical experience, who knows what that looks like in five years, right? I, I think it'll definitely change. Um, but I think that um, it'll still exist to some, to some degree. So I that, think, sorry. No, no, good. No, I was going to say like, I, I think like Alamo draft house, um, they've, they've had a rough year as, as you can imagine, but I feel like the product that they put out there um, is just a, 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 an indication of where things could go, right? right? Where it's communal, where there's, you know, it's not just showing a movie, it's food, it's beverage, it's, you know, there's, there's fun stuff happening there. I, I, I do think that it'll be theatrical is going to look different, but I think it'll still be around. So I want to talk about the economics of that, right? So, you know, I think that, you know, there, there used to be, at least from, from a lay person's perspective, there used to be this thing where theatrical, then there's DVD, and then, you know, there's merch or whatever. And, and that TV, to, and you'd find, and, right, you'd find, and, fall into TV. Right, and TV. And so there was this sort of linear approach to how studio and makes money. And then the, the numbers on the board were, you know, like, ah, this film made a billion dollars. Isn't that awesome? Um, and now it seems like they're streaming. It seems like the international markets are not necessarily a separate market. They're simultaneous. Uh, does it do, is there just more content and every more people, but making less? Is there more money in the business? Are things changing for the better, creating more opportunity? You know, where is it going? I mean, I, again, I go back to the Raiders of Lost Ark, you know, <laughs> the change because look, look at music, right? The music industry, every article was about how the music industry was over. It was dead. Napster's killing it. It was no, you know, and people were, and, and the, the habits of buying physical CDs like disintegrated, right? And yet the music business is stronger than it has ever been. Right. So I think the film business is the same way. Right. DVD for sure. DVD was fueling. I mean, I, I saw that because the, when we first made, I think the first machete, it was literally like the tail end of the DVD business because I think machete made a little over $30 million domestic box office, but then like home video, I thought we made like 40 or $50 million for fun. like it was some crazy number. And it was like, 25% of it were in Blu-rays and, and it was just, it really bolstered things. It was probably why we made a sequel to it. Um, had more to do with what happened, you know, after its theatrical run than, than anything else. Right. Then that goes away and people freak out like, Oh my goodness, this is never going to fix itself. And, but the bag of sand and the, and, and the idol that fades away. Now streamers are coming in and streamers are willing to pay hundreds of millions of dollars for Seinfeld reruns, right? So yeah, it used to be Seinfeld or a show like that would be on syndicated television and that was lucrative, right? And that might be changing to some degree as people don't have regional, won't have regional cable in the same way, but you have this 800 pound gorilla that's willing to, you know, that, that's willing to put hundreds of millions of money that would have, they would have never seen before in a single transaction, right? So that's where I think we are. What I will say, which is fascinating to me, is what people watch and how much they're watching, right? Like, for instance, how many multi-part, like Tiger King or multi-part documentaries have you seen in this last year, right? I know people are like, oh, Tiger King. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, that was five hours long, right? 10 years ago, if I said to you, hey, I have a five-hour documentary I want you to watch, you go, go fuck yourself. Right. I mean, like literally I, of all the friends I had, 
I, I, I don't think I can find one to, to come down, sit, and watch my five-hour documentary. Meanwhile, people can't watch Tiger, Tiger King fast enough, right? Or they right. can't watch the, or the, the Woody Allen, whatever. It's like, boom, boom, boom. And all of them are four or five hours long, and people are ripping through them. So that's really interesting to, to me is, you know, what does that mean, right? Have our collective attention spans gotten, gotten longer? I don't know. Um, you know, are people now more interested in sort of a, a longer kind of textured um, storyline that that will that will that will uh, kind of unfold over time? Um, those are the things that I think are definitely changes, and they're scary, but it could be really interesting moving forward. Okay, so I want to just ask a quick question around uh, around gaming, right? And, and so. Obviously now, COVID, people spend more time in their homes. Streaming is big. People love to, like to sit in, in front of their television. Um, we, we've seen the rising, the rise of game industry and e-gaming. And I remember 20 years ago when everyone thought that interactive movies was going to be the future, right? And I feel like this, this idea of interactive movies and this idea of gaming kind of merge somewhere at the top and you've got this really interesting industry that has a combination of augmented reality and virtual reality all wrapped up in some game-like system. Is that going to be a thing? I mean, obviously it's a thing, but is it going to be a thing in, um, from a, uh, it's going to influence and impact the film industry in any way? What's, what are your thoughts on that? I feel like this, this is the only, I try to stay open-minded and I try you know, not to be like an old crotchety, uh, <laughs> old and crotchety and, 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 you know, say, damn you kids kind of, kind of thing. But this is the one area that I kind of call humbug on, right. Is I think that they're two different things, right. You, you know, um, being in some scenario where you're making the decisions and you're an active participant, I just feel like that's a different product, a different thing than sitting and watching a movie or being passive, right? Sitting down with someone where you're not necessarily making decisions, where you're taking it easy and, and, and you're comfortable and, and relaxing, I feel like that's a passive activity. And what you're describing is an active one. It doesn't make one better or worse, but it makes them different. So I don't necessarily see them, the confluence of it, where film becomes video games or video games become film at, at some point. Um, that said... I do think that the fact that kids have another, or not kids, grown people, um, have the ability to spend four or five hours in a virtual environment does put a pressure on film and television to, to compete with that, right? Because for us growing up, it was, you know, you went to the movies or you watched TV, right? Or you read a book if you were a nerd. Um, no, I'm just saying that there were, there were fewer options. Now, you know, uh, when I talk to my, my younger son, uh, who's 13, you know, he, he's just not that psyched to see the big new movie on Friday. It's just not that compelling to him where I would be losing my mind to see Godzilla vs. King Kong when I was 13, right? right. He, could, he could care less, you know, because he's, he's in, in something else. So I think that's what's changing is what we're, what we're actually doing with our time. Look at even adults, right? You're listening to podcasts. You're doing this. You're, you know, we're, we're we're definitely into content, and I hate using that word, but it's it's the word to use. We're into content all day long, but we're now finding ourselves open to other things, so that the uh, the alarm of how important film is is definitely less. 
Well, there's no question there are more competitive things that you can be doing now that technology has brought us we never had before. Aaron, this has been so insightful. I, uh, you know, every, you've touched on everything from content to producing to location to uh, to the future outlook after COVID. Um, we can't thank you enough for coming on. I do want to oh, make, well, thanks make for having me. Yeah, and and you know your 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 content is king. Uh, argument is so valid. And I think over the course of at least my year, my generations, uh, I've seen you know, the delivery method may change, but the content still has to be key and the, the production abilities and the talent still have to be there. And regardless of where you're going to get that content, you still need quality content. Well, listen, Aaron, thank you very much um, sure, uh, for being here with us. I learned a ton. It was super insightful. I'm sure our, our listeners learned a bunch as well. So Good luck with your new uh, projects. I'm looking forward to having you back on the show. All right, man. Talk to you guys soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Aaron. You've been listening to The Real Estate Podcast. Give us a quick review and rating on iTunes. Check out our website at therealestate.co and let us know if there are any new topics you'd like to hear us address. We love hearing your feedback. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.